Good morning. Yeah, I want to say an amen to that, brother. And uh, that's the bottom line for me, and that is without a vision, the people perish. Either way you look at it. And uh, what that looks like individually and corporately is, I guess, it's just something that we need to understand in a greater way and just uh, walk in it. And I appreciate what you said that it doesn't, it's not supposed to look like a, a grand thing. It just starts from humble beginnings. And if we are faithful in that, God will surely give us the opportunities that we need or that we're looking for. Uh, I guess I'm going a little bit in a different direction. Um, just sharing what's on my heart and the things that are going on in my life and uh, I believe also in, in ours as well. I want to share a little bit on brokenness. This message didn't quite come together as I thought it would. Um, didn't have the best of days yesterday. It's just uh, sometimes it's hard, but I guess that's what it's all about. Life is not easy. And the thing is, hopefully, that we can keep our, our eyes fixed on Christ and just continue on, even through our brokenness and even through our failings, that uh, God is still there. He's still in control. So before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we again bow ourselves before you, and we just want to invite you here into our midst again. And we thank you that you are there. We thank you, Lord, that you never sleep, you never slumber. You are always there, Father. Your presence is with us wherever we go, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't sense it. You have promised, Father, to never leave nor forsake us. You're a God that heals. You're a God that, that just uh, brings us out of the depths of the miry clay, Father, and sets our feet on the solid rock. Even through our struggling and our striving, Father, we know that there is a silver lining in it if we look for it. We know, Father, that you don't make mistakes, that whatever you do is good and is right. And that even in our messes, Father, you are there helping us. We pray, Father, again, that you'll be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So brokenness. How can brokenness be beautiful or even something that is desirable or good. Most people don't like broken things. We prefer things that are whole or in workable condition. That's why most people don't go out and buy things that are broken. We feel that when something breaks and we can't fix it, it has lost its value. It's only good for maybe parts or the dumpster. And then the landfill. Generally, when you buy something and you take it home and open it and you find that it's broken, you send it right back to the company for a replacement. 
I guess it's safe to say that most people don't relish the thought of being broken themselves. Experiences that break us are not pleasant, but painful, hurtful, or frustrating. We often wish these situations would just go away. But the question is, can we avoid being broken as disciples and followers of Christ? Or is this something only for a few people? While all the rest of us can live a life of ease or free from brokenness. Why does Christ have to break us anyway? What's the purpose in it? I don't know if I can answer that question in its entirety. But hopefully we'll be able to see that God can take our brokenness. And turn it into something that is useful and beautiful. And I guess this ties in with what Brother Morgan shared, that the first thing that we have to understand about reaching out is that we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be available and to give of ourselves. Because one thing that we have to understand is that God sees things differently than we do. In this area of brokenness especially. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. A lot of times where we cannot see how an experience or happening can be helpful or useful, we forget that God does not make mistakes. He sees the end result. He sees the whole picture. And I think one of the main reasons for that, for brokenness, is for God to bring out of us our full potential as a useful vessel for his kingdom and his glory. If you take an orange as an illustration, you can use an orange in numerous ways. You can use it as a paperweight, you could say. You could use it to play catch with one of your children. You could use it as a prop in a picture or a drawing. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, is that actually what the orange is intended for? And uh, sometimes you run into these pictures where they... um, of these tribes in the jungles, they find an object of some kind and they use it for something that it was totally not intended for, but it works. It's the same way with an orange. These may all be beneficial uses, which we can get some use out of. I mean, which gets some use out of the orange. But if that's all you ever do with it, It's kind of a waste of the orange's life. To reach its full potential, you have to break the outer shell to get to the inside. Because the inside is what really matters when it comes to an orange. And it's that part that we use in order that we may receive nourishment from our bodies. So in the same way, if you look at it, You can take a lesson from the orange, that our lives are sometimes 
through experiences. We are protected by a tough outer shell where we isolate ourselves from Christ and from others. We believe that we are tough and can make it on our own. And we can even be useful in many areas. But in order to reach our full potential and usefulness, that outer shell has to be stripped away. And a lot of times, people's hearts become hard. That shell becomes hard to the point where it takes quite a bit to get it off. The same is true for seeds. For a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. The shell cracks, its insides come out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like a complete destruction. Seeds are always the picture of new life just bursting to get out. But the fact of the matter is that the seed must die in order for life to burst out. As it dies, it transforms into roots that go deep and stems that soon make their way out of the dirt into the air in order to grow and blossom. If you dig up a plant after it has blossomed, you won't find the seed, only the product of the dead seed. And in John 12, 24 and 20, verses 24, 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, for life eternal. The more you think about this verse, the more the reality strikes you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Ephesians 4, 21 to 24 says, If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I think we know that Jesus teaches us that the death of that seed is not solely once and for all. There is also a death that is ongoing and daily. It is a death to self, a death to the seed within each one of us that wants to raise its ugly head on an ongoing basis. It is a stripping and breaking process that continues on an ongoing, pro- on ongoing basis. And a lot of times also, what helps in this process is our prayers that we pray. One of the most serious prayers you can pray is, Lord, make me more like you, or Lord, thy will be done. The thing is that you should never pray, let's say, for patience, unless you want what patience you have to already be tested. Anyway, that's how it seems. If you do pray for patience, you will find out just how impatient you really are. God will bring people into your life that bring out the worst in you and put you in situations that make you feel like you have absolutely no patience at all. 
But in all of that, God is slowly changing you so that you are slightly more patient today than you were a week ago, hopefully. We should not be surprised at what comes up in our lives when we pray along these lines. I think we miss a lot of God-given opportunities of growth because we simply were looking for the wrong thing. And I've noticed that in my life, when you, in the morning when you pray, and when you especially pray for these things, that you pray for patience, you pray for uh, wisdom, you pray for um, just being able to speak in someone's life. It looks like a lot of times we focus on the wrong things. And God places these certain circumstances into our lives that we so often miss, that that was actually a chance and an opportunity for us to learn how to be more of the thing that we prayed for. Because we're looking for, a lot of times, these grand ideas or these, uh, you could say these, um, for me anyway, it is these, um, I would guess, daydreams of wanting to be someone great for God. But it's the little things that actually matter. And when we pray, thy will be done, we are also praying that my will be undone. It means sometimes willing to let go of some cherished dreams and plans and goals if they aren't part of God's will. It means to have desires denied and longings go unfulfilled sometimes. But it means that for everything I give up, we believe that God is handing us something better. And that's something that we have to believe. That God has something better in store. If he says no, and he has something better in store. But still one of the hardest prayers is, Lord, I surrender. Even now, there are sometimes fears that God isn't really there for me. He won't do what's best for me if I give up control. But that's not, that's not true. People who resist the experiences that God uses to tenderize their spirits usually end up as the walking wounded. Perhaps the most common walking wounded is the person who has an underground river of anger ready to burst through the service like a geyser. Some, wound, some walking wounded carry the agonizing hurt inflicted by a parent, a spouse, a child, a workmate. Others blame God for the pain of their broken dreams and the lack of fulfillment and tend to have a tainted view of the future because they never grew out of the pain of the past or their past experiences. Like the grumbling tribe of Israel in the wilderness, their lives reflect a holding pattern because they failed to yield to God out of their time of brokenness. In fact, as they consistently avoid spiritual breaking, they grow cold without really maturing spiritually. So you can be in this place of just not yielding to God's hand, recognizing brokenness. You are broken if... All your rights are surrendered. 
You're willing to be rejected. You're willing to share failures. You have a sense of total inadequacy. You trust God undeservedly, unreservedly. You are totally obedient to Christ. You are genuinely humble and you are teachable. I'll read those again. You are broken if all your rights are surrendered. You are willing to be rejected. You are willing to share your failures. You have a sense of total inadequacy. You trust God unreservedly. You are totally obedient to Christ. You are genuinely humble You are te- and you are teachable. It's a good list to go through to check yourself. Because I find it to be very true when it comes to brokenness. And if we're not willing to be there, if we're not willing to take each one of these at face value and answer them, then there's still some work in us that needs to be done. In Mark chapter 6, I want to read the account of uh, Jesus um, feeding the 5,000. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and sat before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So in this account, there are a few things we look at. Jesus said something that's a bit odd during the account of the first feeding of the five thousand. When the disciples asked how they were to feed all the multitude, if you remember, he who had followed Jesus, he said to them, you feed them. On the surface, it seems strange that Jesus should ask such a monumental task of 12 men to feed what probably amounted to around 7,000 people, counting women and children. Why would Jesus ask that? I think what Jesus wanted was their willingness to sacrifice whatever they held in their hands for the work of the kingdom. And I think it fits in again well with what Brother Morgan shared. 
In this case, it was two fishes and five loaves given to them by a small boy, who also was in this. He was in this, yet he, he gave it willingly. At this, and if you look at that, it's kind of laughable, laughable because it's woeful inadequate for 5,000 men and women. It's very inadequate. But this is what Jesus took and blessed and broke and administered to many. And in this day and age, if you look around, a lot of us are praying for peace or different things. We ask that Jesus step in and make peace by bringing unity to strife and problems, maybe even here in Altona or elsewhere. And maybe Jesus turns to us and he says, you go and make peace. And we say, how? And he says, what do you have in your hand? And we say, not much, not nearly enough to accomplish reconciliation. But the thing is, you have to say, whatever I have is yours. I give it to you. And what Jesus is looking for in us isn't extraordinary ability, but unconditional availability. What he asks from us isn't great acts or passionate speeches. What he asks from us is our very selves. And if you think about, again, the rich young ruler that came, I think what Jesus, you could say, he did not ask this of all men that came to him as, as basically their, their money. But he did this with this man because he knew that this was a hindrance to him. He asked for his whole heart. And that's what he was really interested. So sometimes in order for God to use us, we have to be broken before we can be shared. But if you actually look at that statement, it's actually really not true. Because if you think about it, every time God wants to use us, we have to be broken in order to be shared. Because if you look at the lives of men and women in the Bible, especially men and women that have been used mightily by God, there was a breaking process. Sometimes it was quite lengthy, but it was there. And sometimes that breaking process means dying a thousand times a thousand different ways each day. It means dying to self-rights, to pride, to vanity, to my own way of seeing and doing things. And those are the hard deaths. And we have to see that sometimes God will bless so many more with your broken life than he could with your perfect life. Everything you've lost, God is able to restore it many times over in the lives of many people who find the hope of God's provision in your story of ruin and redemption.
And this is where we have to come to. We trust God's leading. We trust his work and his hand in our lives is for our good and not even not only for our good, but for the good of others. And it's more than our own perceived need for comfort and safety and peace. And the bottom line is Jesus wants all of me. That means he wants us to release all of our strongholds. We have allowed Satan to have in our lives, our fears, our insecurities, our comparisons, our negativity, our need for approval, our loneliness, our bitterness, our health, our relationships, and on and on, everything, all of me. Many of these strongholds begin in our thought life. Satan whispers lies, and we believe them to be true. We grab hold of them and live our life convinced that we are justified by our feelings. But the Bible tells us to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Are our thoughts true? The Bible tells us that God's word is the truth and that his word clearly tells us that he is with us. We can do all things to Christ who strengthens us and that everything works together for the good. That we are to love and walk in faith and that we are loved with an everlasting love and are a child of the King. So simple, yet we cling to our strongholds instead of clinging to Christ. And sometimes it seems the only thing you can do is just cry out, Jesus, help me. And uh, the next example of this is where we find ourselves sometimes is the example of the, the woman who came to Christ with the alabaster box. It's found in Luke 7, 36 to uh, 50. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, table, at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who, f who is forgiven little loves little. 
And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then going on down, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a picture of a broken woman. And I think one of the keys to why she did what she she did is that she finally embraced the brokenness, which means she didn't make any excuses anymore. She didn't justify her actions. She embraced the brokenness. And the verses, it doesn't tell us what she had done or what she was, what she did. But it does tell us that she came. It tells us that she was crying. It indicates sadness from the brokenness of her sin. And then she positioned herself as she came into the house. She knelt behind Jesus at his feet, crying. In other words, this woman was real about her issues. She may not have had words. She may not have known in whose house she is in. But we do know that she was at the feet of Jesus. To be at someone's feet can symbolize humility and respect. She may not have even felt worthy to be near Jesus, but her kneeling position shows that she was grateful to be there. And this is where this woman needed to be. She made herself available. And she's basically coming and she's saying, Lord, here I am with all my issues. And we too must do this in the midst of our brokenness. And one thing that you will notice in this story is that she stayed there despite of what the people around her were saying. And she kept on doing what she had to do. She broke that alabaster box, which we know was very expensive, up to a year's wage, which a lot of people considered a waste. But she did this for Christ, and as she knelt there, Kiss the master's feet, a sign of humility, and worship to Christ. And in the end, and he gave her honor. And when I think about this, this story, you know, this could have turned out very different. A lot of times, When people are at that point in their life, they choose a different path. Try to get out of the mess and the pain, the hurt and the despair they find themselves in. But this woman chose to come to Christ in her brokenness. And she came not worrying what others were going to say. And this should fill us with hope that even in our darkest times, can come to the feet of Jesus. And I especially think of of people who wonder how it can be. 
But it is the enemy that deceives, the enemy that keeps lying to them. But there is hope. There is hope. Again, that even in our darkest times, all we have to do is come. We don't even have to speak. And it's there that we receive healing and hope. And another person that uh, I thought about a lot on brokenness is the Apostle Peter. It's just that Jesus kept working on Peter until he came to the end of himself. He almost ended up killing a man. And which we know, if that would have happened, he would have died the death of a murderer. But ultimately, he ended up denying Christ and weeping bitterly over what he had become. But Jesus was not finished with Peter. We know when he, was, when he resurrected, he came back to him. And in John 21, verses 15, he says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. And if you look at this process, it was a gradual one, kind of like training a headstrong horse for kingdom work. It was a slow but steady working in his heart to reveal the areas that needed to be broken. And some of those strongholds needed some pretty, pretty drastic measures for Peter to see. And I think we could say that for most of the apostles. But uh, speaking of horses, I think it's also a good uh, analogy or of being broken. Picture a wild stallion being ridden for the first time. It doesn't want to submit to the rider or do what it's told. It enjoys being fed, having a straw filled with fresh water, and being allowed to go out and nibble grass in the sunshine. The problem comes when the saddle is tossed on its back, laced over its head. A cowboy has more sense than to toss a saddle on the back of a wild horse that has never been ridden. For days he may lead the animal around a pen as it adjusts to the feel of the harness and its new surroundings. Then the saddle comes out of the tack room and is placed on the horse's back but without a rider. Finally the cowboy puts a foot in one of the stirrups. There are many steps in between these. But we can form a mental picture of the process used to break a horse and prepare it to be ridden. When the cowboy climbs into the saddle, the initial shock of having someone on its back is frightening and irritating. The animal might buck and rear its head before it begins to settle and trot around its pen. Some horses refuse to be broken and risk being sold. Others in time and through proper care are broken and begin to enjoy a lifetime of service. To their owners. So basically, an unbroken horse is a useless horse. A lot of times, they're only good for taking a good picture in a magazine or a movie. But running wild and free, you never really reach their full potential. God uses brokenness for his glory. It may not feel or seem like it right away, as in the case of this, these horses. 
taking away our freedoms, taking away our strength, basically, our, our own will. But it is in that brokenness that the beauty and testament of our faith is demonstrated to believers and unbelievers alike. We can see it with the men and the women that died in the Colosseums for their faith. But a lot of times we wonder if God can make something of our lives. When we look at a masterpiece, a work of art, we have this understanding that masterpieces have to be flawless. They cannot have cracks or blemishes. But what do we do when that is not the case? We would rather avoid the brokenness. And we really can't see sometimes, a lot of times, the beauty in it. But there is also a, uh, have a, a writing here of the art of Kintsugi, which is something that they do in Japan. It says, there are going to be broken times when you feel as if everything is under demolition, when things feel unresolved or ruined inside of you, when the only thing you have, might have the strength to do is three quarters of the way trust that God will be, take the broken pieces and glue them back together. That's called kintsuji. Kintsuji is a Japanese term that means join with gold or golden seams. If you were to break a jar and wanted to put it back together using the method of kintsuji, someone would take the jar and piece it back together with a glue that is mixed with powdered gold or platinum. It wouldn't be like super glue, where the item looks perfect because the glue is clear. In this case, you would see the gold in all the cracks. You would know that the object has breaks in it. Those who practice kintsuji believe that just because something breaks doesn't mean it cannot be used anymore. It's not about perfection. It's about resilience. The once broken thing becomes more valuable now because there is gold binding the pieces together. I feel it's very good. I'm glad they're doing that in Japan. It's that in our experiences, in our incompleteness that we feel that we are, God is, can take that and put it back together. Another one here is, in their book, Invitation to a Journey, Robert Mulholland and Ruth Haley Barton described the reality of what it means to take up our cross in our daily lives. Sometimes we suffer under the illusion that our incompleteness, our brokenness, our deadness is something like a sweater that we can easily unbutton and slip off. It is not that easy. Our brokenness is us. We have met, like Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. This is what Jesus indicates when he speaks about losing yourself. The, that part of you which has not yet been formed in the image of Christ is simply a thing in you. It is an essential part of who you are. This is what Jesus is pointing to when he calls us to take up our cross. Our cross is not that cantankerous person we have to deal with day by day. 
Our cross is not the employer who we just can't get along with. Our cross is not that neighbor or work colleague who cuts across the grain in every single time of, of our, in our relationship. Nor is the cross the difficulties and infirmities that the, that flow of life brings us beyond our control. Our cross is the point of our unlikeness to the image of Christ, where we must die to self in order to be raised by God into wholeness of life in the image of Christ right there. So those things that in us, that God is showing us that are not like him. Again, the cross is not the cantankerous person that we have to deal with each day. The cross is basically what he's saying. What they're saying is, it is the things in us that are not Christ-like that don't react the way that, that Christ would in those situations. Holdness and Jack Pines. The educator Parker Palmer writes, Holdness doesn't mean perfection. It means embracing brokenness as an integral part of life. When Palmer speaks of holdness, he doesn't mean a perfectly functioning body or even a worldview where all the pieces fit together. What he has in mind is closer to the idea of integrity. He uses uh, the illustration of the jack pine. Jack pines are not lumber trees. They won't win many beauty contests either. But to me, this valiant old tree, solitary on its own rocky point, is as beautiful as a living thing can be. In the calligraphy of its shape against the sky is written strength of character and perseverance, survival of wind, drought, cold, heat, disease. In its silence, it speaks of wholeness, an integrity that comes from being tested and battered by the elements, but continues to stand and persevere. So, in this, often... Think of beauty as a wholeness. But what if it is not like that? What if we feel ourselves as not being whole? As struggling along and and just uh, failing a lot. This is where the promises of God come in. He says, the sacrifice, in Psalms 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalms 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And the reason, I think, why we go through those experiences is for God to draw us to himself. It's that he is there. When we're hurting, he is there. Isaiah 43, verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flame will not set you ablaze. God can take the broken pieces of our lives and make something beautiful about of it. 
but we have to hand him the pieces. In closing, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we know who said that. It was Christ saying it to Paul. If we look at the life of Paul, it was simply a man who gave his all for Christ. He simply made himself completely available to Christ. And he understood that he could do nothing apart from Christ. So when you look at that, and in our brokenness, we have to come to the place where we understand that that process of breaking, of molding, of shaping, is simply to show us that in our own strength, of our own ideas, in our own wisdom, we can do nothing. What Christ wants is all of us, is everything about us. And he would not remove this thorn in the flesh for Paul, but he would give him the grace to bear it. And in the same way, no matter what you or I are facing, no matter the tests and trials we may face yet, we have God's full assurance that his grace is sufficient, that for all, for all the life experiences that come our way. So there's hope even in our brokenness, if we just surrender ourselves to Christ, if we come and surrender to him, he will continue the work. He will do exactly what needs to be done in order to get a reward for his suffering. So God bless you. Thank you.